Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. And we're in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we'll read verses 1 to 21. Uh, but we'll just deal with the first eight verses tonight of this passage. It's a really important passage for not only uh, understanding the Sabbath, but also legalism and then also interpretation of the Bible. So there's a lot of issues going on here that are beneficial for, for many various topics. And so uh, we'll deal with that in, in, in turn. So Matthew chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogues. And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight, Lord, to study your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us, Lord, to properly understand, uh, Lord, all of the scripture. Lord, seeking to harmonize uh, every passage so that there is no contradiction. Lord, we don't want to condemn the innocent. Lord, as the Pharisees were condemning Jesus and his disciples, Lord, in their false zeal uh, for you and their false zeal for the law, they were the ones who were actually breaking it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would guard and keep us from falling into uh, similar attitudes and sins. Lord, that we would have a, a true and a proper interpretation of the Bible. And Lord, that we might see how each passage fits together and helps explain one to the other. Uh, so, Lord, teach us tonight uh, to rightly handle the word of truth. Lord, that we might be faithful to you in all things and that we might know your will and do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Lord, give us your mind and, Lord, help us tonight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in Matthew chapter 12, and here we have a controversy that arises 
uh, concerning the Sabbath day and the proper observance of the Sabbath day, right? So this is an important topic, and it's important because uh, Jesus is being condemned unjustly uh, by these people who claim to be very zealous for God, people who are claiming and who are self-professing and also in terms of the estimation of the people, considered to be very religious people, right? Very religious, very serious-minded, very serious about the Bible, all right? Studious concerning the law of Moses. This is what they are claiming, and this is what many people assume to be true of them, and yet we see that they don't have the proper understanding of the Bible, that they are misinterpreting the Bible, and then in their misinterpretation, they are condemning an innocent man, even condemning the Son of God, which is blasphemy. And so it's a very important thing for us to learn that we must accurately divide the Bible. We have to rightly understand. We have to handle the word of God properly so that we are not uh, condemning the innocent, nor can we acquit the guilty, right? But we have to be able to judge in truth and righteousness. But if we're going to do this, we have to understand the Bible. We have to understand what it means and how it applies in various situations. And here we are learning from this passage how one passage helps us understand and properly apply another passage, right? This is the principle that Jesus is using here, uh, using a passage, uh, one passage, to help us understand another passage and the implications that it has on the present situation. So this is what we have to be able to do as well. We have to be masters of the Bible, have a, a, a comprehension of the scriptures so that we are rightly dividing the word of truth. Right? And we don't want to be like the Pharisees who have false knowledge and false zeal. And in this, they are condemning the innocent man. So let's pick up in verse 1. And again, we'll only go through the first eight verses because there's a lot to deal with here in this passage. Exactly how Jesus is using this comparison to David and his men and what took place there in the book of 1 Samuel and the implications that that has for this the weightier measures of the law and those things that are less weighty and how those things relate to one another and how it helps us to rightly understand and be informed concerning the things of God. So verse one, it says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Here, Jesus is traveling, going through grain fields on the Sabbath day. Now we know that Jesus his whole mission and his whole purpose in life is to preach the word of God, right? To preach, to promote, to announce the kingdom of God, to tell men to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what he is all about. His whole life is centered on this, right? His whole ministry is centered on doing good deeds, right? And preaching the word of God. This is what he is consumed with, doing the will of his father who is in heaven. So if Jesus is walking through grain fields on the Sabbath, we know that he's not doing so because he's careless, because he has no consideration or regard for keeping the Sabbath day, because he was spent the, the day before uh, watching football and uh, doing hobbies and those types of things. And so he's not ready for the Sabbath day to come and he hasn't made the proper preparations. We know that that's not the case. If Jesus is going here and there on the Sabbath day, it's because he's going proclaiming the kingdom of God, doing good deeds, healing people, right? Doing these types of things, preaching the gospel of the kingdom to people, which is the fulfillment of the Sabbath day. This is the best thing to do on the Sabbath day, right? So here they're going through the grain fields on the Sabbath 
his disciples are with him because they are accompanying him in his ministry. So they're not squandering their time. They're not doing these types of things. They're not being careless in any way, shape, or form, but rather they are resolute in their purpose and what they are doing, and they are pursuing, we know, spiritual things, right? The kingdom of God. And as they're going through the grain fields, the disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. They're hungry as they are traveling about because they're very busy doing the work of the kingdom, right? And because they are men who have bodies and whenever you have a body, you have to eat, right? We have to eat every day. We have to have our daily bread. If we don't eat, our body tells us through hunger and then we need to satisfy that hunger as a way of giving us the strength that we need to do the things that we need to do each and every day, right? This is the way our body is made. And is there anything sinful about eating if you're hungry, right? There's nothing sinful about eating when you are hungry. And here, the hunger is coming not because uh, they neglected to do what they should have done the day before, but because they're so busy doing the work of the kingdom, right? Doing the Lord's will, they're busy doing those things, and as a result of their efforts, they have become hungry as they're traveling about going to and fro, right? Because when you're busy and active, then you burn more energy and you need to eat, right? In order to sustain yourself and to replenish the nutrients and the things that you need for your body. Now, a question that needs to be addressed first is, are they stealing, right? Is this stealing? Because it's not their grain field that they're going through. They're traveling through grain fields, so the first question we need to ask is, are they breaking the eighth commandment, which says that you should not steal? So let's go back to Deuteronomy 23, 25. Deuteronomy 23, 25, in the law of Moses, we have a provision made for this situation. Deuteronomy 23, verse 24 says, when you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. Here, the issue here is a person who is traveling, who is going somewhere, who doesn't have provisions with him, and as he goes on his way, he becomes hungry. There's a vineyard there that belongs to his neighbor. It's not his vineyard. Well, here there's a provision made out of good to our neighbor, love of neighbor, that if the man is hungry, then what should we do? We should let him eat. So a provision is made for the man to go into the vineyard or into the grain field in order to satisfy his hunger, right? Satisfy his hunger. Not to go pilfer his neighbor's vineyard right? Not fill his basket and take it home to his family, right? Not fill it and go and take it to the market and sell it, but just for him to get enough to satisfy his hunger so that he doesn't faint or become famished on his journey and on the way. So there is a provision made for this. And that's what the disciples are doing, right? They're going to and fro on the Sabbath day. They become hungry. They're not going and taking a sickle and going and uh, harvesting the grain so that they can go to the market and sell it and make a profit on it. They're doing it because they have a need. The need is stated in verse one. 
they became hungry. And this is why this provision is made for this situation, right? And especially for this situation, because they're doing the Lord's work on the Sabbath day and they're hungry. So anyone should be willing to help them in this way. And this provision is made in that case. So they're not stealing in doing this, but rather this is allowed and permitted there in the law for this exact situation. So they are not stealing and not that they're charged with stealing. That's not the issue that's brought up. The issue that's brought up is in relation to the Sabbath. So that's the second question. Are they breaking the Sabbath? Does the commandment, does the law forbid a hungry man from plucking a head of grain on the Sabbath? Is this forbidden, right? For a person to do this kind of work, this kind of labor on the Sabbath day, plucking a head of grain is a kind of work or labor. But here again, the situation is a situation of desperation. They're desperate because they're hungry. And again, it's not because of carelessness. It is not because they have been squandering their time the day before, and now they haven't made the preparations that they need for the Sabbath day, and they have to go out and do this. They're busy doing the Lord's work. And as they're going from one place to another, they're going through the grain field, they simply reach out their hand, pluck a few pieces of grain, and then are eating it as they travel along the way. So this is in no way in breaking the Sabbath commandment, the spirit of the Sabbath, the purpose of the Sabbath is not doing that at all, right? And in the same way, we would say, isn't it necessary for a mother to provide a meal for their child on the Sabbath day? They have to do that, right? What if the child uh, has a dirty diaper? Are they not supposed to change the diaper on the Sabbath day because you can't work on the Sabbath day? No, it's necessity. You have to do those things, right? And the law makes those provisions. It's obvious, right? You have to take your ox or your donkey to go get water on the Sabbath day because they cannot go a full day without water. So obviously these works of necessity are permissible. The Sabbath is not restricting us from doing those things that are necessary. And in the case with the disciples, this is a work of necessity and it's a work of mercy because the reason they're in this situation is because they're doing good. They're with Christ and they're going about doing good on the Sabbath day. Even here, he's going into their synagogues in verse nine. Departing from there, he's going to the synagogue. And why would Jesus go to the synagogue? To preach the gospel, right? They're going from village to village, preaching the gospel. That's what Christ is doing and healing people of their diseases. He's doing good deeds on the Sabbath. And this is the situation that arises. So this is in no way are they breaking the Sabbath. They're not stealing, nor are they breaking the Sabbath commandment. And obviously anyone reading the law of Moses objectively would see and recognize and understand that there's no legitimacy to this charge. So why are they doing this then? Why are the Pharisees bringing this up? They are fault finders, evil suspicion, nitpickers. They are nitpicking every little thing that they do, looking for something by which they can accuse Jesus and his disciples, right? They're charging the disciples, but ultimately who are they charging? Jesus. It all comes back to Christ, right? Because he's the one that's in charge of them. And if they're doing it, they're doing it under his authority. Therefore, he himself is the problem. They're wanting to find a legitimate uh, excuse in their mind 
to reject Christ because they hate his message and they don't want to submit to him. So they are looking under every rock and cranny to find something, some malady by which they can accuse him of sin in order to reject him. And here, oh, you're breaking the Sabbath day. You're not a religious man. You're not a holy man. You're not a righteous man. How can you be a righteous man? Because you guys, you, you don't even have any regard for the Sabbath day. When obviously this is not the case. When it is clearly not according to reality, nor according to the Bible. Verse 2 says, But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now again, according to whom? According to whom is it not lawful to do this on the Sabbath day? According to God? According to Moses? Or according to them? Well, according to them. According to their false interpretation. They are legalists. And they, in their legalism, in their heresy, are accusing Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath. So we always have to ask, by whose standard, by whose judgment are you making this charge? Are you making this accusation? Is it on the basis of the Bible? Is it on the basis of the word of God in the true proper interpretation of the word of God? Or is it on the basis of your own corrupted false, polluted understanding of the word of God. And here, it is according to their own wisdom, not according to the wisdom of God, not according to the prophet Moses, who spoke by the spirit of Christ, but rather according to their own ideas and their own fancies. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, where we read about the Sabbath commandment. Exodus 20, verse 8. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here, the Sabbath commandment is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. To keep it holy. The Sabbath day is a day, one day in seven, set apart from common labor, from those things that we commonly do, the other six days of the week. We have to work, right? We have to work in order to provide income so that we can provide for our families. This is a necessary part of this life. And we are called to work, right? If a person is not working, he's lazy and he is not, he shouldn't eat. A person who will not work, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. So working is not evil, Working is not contrary to the will of God. Working is a part of the will of God, and it is a part of our life in this present world. We are called to work. Didn't God even give that command to Adam in the garden before sin entered the world, that he was to work the garden, and we are continued to have to work. Now, of course, because of the curse of sin, work becomes difficult. It becomes more hard, right? It becomes something that is uh, laborious to us, but it is still good 
for a man to work and to do those things. But for how many days a week should the man give to common labor, to those things that he needs to do in this life, whether that be his employment or whether that be the things that he has to do there at the house, mowing the yard, uh, fixing the plumb, what, you know, whatever needs to be done there at the house. Well, six days. Six days you should labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is to be kept holy to the Lord, meaning that this day is to be set aside for spiritual purposes, right. set aside to focus on God, to focus on the kingdom of God, to focus on eternal life, the life to come, so that we do not become preoccupied and consumed with this present world. We are to set this one day aside to focus all of our time. We don't have to worry about anything else. All these other things that consume us and preoccupy our time, and many of those things are necessary. We have to do those things for this life, but this day we set those things aside so that we have one day wholly devoted to the Lord to think about the things of God. Again, not that we don't ever attend to things necessary for this life. We know that we have to do that even on the Lord's day or on the Sabbath day. We have to feed our children, right? If, uh, you know, the pipe burst in your wall and spraying water in your house, okay, you have to deal with that on the Sabbath day, right? If your sheep falls into a well, you have to go get it out on the Sabbath. If your child breaks his arm, you have to take him to the doctor on the Sabbath day. You can't say, well, we got to wait till tomorrow. No, you can't do that, right? That's not the intent and purpose. But commonly, in the normal course of life, in the normal uh, day in and day out function, it should be devoted to the Lord, to pursuing spiritual things, right? To pursuing the things of God and focusing on the Lord. And that is for our good, for our benefit, so that we won't be consumed with this present world and the things of this world, but our mind will be fixed on the kingdom of God and eternal life. Okay, so the purpose of the Sabbath is to promote spiritual things. Well, what is Jesus doing on the Sabbath? He's going to synagogues preaching. And what is the purpose of preaching? But to point people to eternal things, spiritual things, the things of God. So in no way, shape, or form are they violating the purpose of the Sabbath. They're promoting the purpose of the Sabbath, right. the things that are necessary to do on the Sabbath day. So, and his work is the work of the Lord. Right. The Lord's work is what he is doing. He's a minister of the gospel. He's a preacher of righteousness. So he's doing those things. He's doing it the other six days of the week, but especially on the Sabbath day, that's the best day of the week to preach the gospel because it's the day when people commonly gather to hear the preaching of the word of God. It's the day where they're not having to go out to their fields. They're not having to do those things and they're coming to hear the word of God. So this is the best day for him and his disciples to be going from village to village into the synagogues, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, doing those kinds of things. So in no way, shape, or form are they breaking the purpose of the Sabbath, why it was instituted. And the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath for the benefit of man, for our good, right? For our spiritual good. And this is what Jesus is doing. So he is fulfilling the purpose of the Sabbath commandment. Also, Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 
verses 13 and 14. gives us more insight into the purpose and what should be our focus on the Sabbath day or the Lord's day. 58, Isaiah 58, 13. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasures and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there, you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure, doing the things that I want to do, and say instead, this day is a delight to me, because it's a day where I don't have to focus on anything other than the Lord. That's all I want to think about on the Lord's day. It's all I want to focus on on the Sabbath day. I get to spend the whole day focusing on the Lord. It's a delight for me to do those things, right? That's what he's saying. If that's your attitude, if this is your perspective, then it's going to be a benefit to you. It's going to be a great blessing. God is going to feed you with the heritage of Jacob. He's going to pour out spiritual blessings on the man, the woman, who looks at the Lord's day in this way as a delight and says, I'm not going to seek my own pleasure this day, but I want to be focused on the Lord and on his kingdom, meditating on the Lord, delighting in the Lord, worshiping the Lord, spending my time, my activity that day in acts of spiritual devotion to God, public and private worship of God, deeds of, of mercy and deeds of necessity. These are the things that we should be occupied with on the Lord's day or on the Sabbath. I did bring our, uh, from the confession that we just finished, and in chapter 22, paragraph 8, there in defining the Sabbath day, they say this, The Sabbath is kept holy to the Lord when people have first prepared their hearts appropriately and arranged their everyday affairs in advance. Then they observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their secular employment and recreation. Not only that, but they also fill the whole time with public and private acts of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, again, according to the Bible, even according to this paragraph, this is what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They are doing duties of necessity and mercy. Is it ne necessary for people to hear the gospel for their salvation? Absolutely. That's a work of necessity. Souls are going to hell. How are they going to be saved if they don't hear the gospel? And who's the best preacher of the gospel during the days of Christ? Jesus Christ is, okay? Is that a duty, a, a work of mercy? Absolutely, it's a work of mercy. Not only is he healing people of their physical ailments on the Sabbath day, but more importantly, he's healing them of their spiritual ailments on the Sabbath day. And here they also say, fill the whole time with public and private acts of worship. Isn't that what they're doing as well? Going here and there, doing those things? And as they go... They're going through a grain field. They're hungry. So they pick a few heads of grain as they're walking anyway and then eat it as they go. And this is the criticism that is brought up against Jesus. Do you see how nitpicky people are? They will find anything, fault finders, grumblers, malcontents, anything they can find in order to condemn the righteous man. This is what they will do. Now, 
If we go to Proverbs chapter 30, we will remember this because it was our memory verse a few months back. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Obviously, from Exodus 20 and Isaiah 58, what Jesus' disciples are doing is not contrary to the commandment. They are not violating it in any way, shape, or form. So for them to put this expectation on them, then what are the Pharisees doing? They're going beyond the word of God. They're adding to the word of God. But when we add to the word of God, then we are in a very dangerous position because we are putting ourselves as superior to God, wiser than God, better than God, right? more righteous than God. And that's why Proverbs 35 and 6 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his word, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Do not add to the word of God. The word of God nowhere condemns the activities of Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath day. The word of God affirms what they're doing on the Sabbath day, but they're condemning them because they're adding to the word of God. They're adding their own traditions, their own expectations, their own standards to the word of God. They're saying, though the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and this is what it means. But what, it, what they're saying that means is contrary to what the Sabbath actually means, and it is going above and beyond what the Bible teaches. And when a person does this, then they're adding to the word of God. And when you do that, you will be proven to be a liar, which is what Jesus proves them to be, that they are liars. So they're not good intention people. They don't mean well. They're not sincere in what they're doing. They are liars in what they are doing. Anytime a person adds to the Bible or takes away from the Bible, they are not sincere. They do not mean well. They're not good intentioned. But rather they are liars who are of their father, the devil. That's what they're doing. In the name of God, they are lying. That's blasphemy. They're taking God's name in vain. And we should not take the name of God in vain. So, though they would say, oh, well, we just want to be extra careful, right? We want to go above and beyond to make sure that we don't break the Sabbath day, right? They, they talk about putting fences around the commandments, but you don't need a fence around the commandment. The commandment itself is a fence. The commandment itself sets a boundary so that you don't go outside of it. But they say, well, no, let's make another fence so that we don't even get close to breaking it. No, that's not necessary because the commandment itself is sufficient, it is sufficient for everything that we need in order to do the will of God. It does not need improvement. It does not need extra measures to protect it. It's, it is in itself indefensible. So we should not go beyond the word of God, okay? In any matter, whether it's the Sabbath or anything else. Okay, verses three and four. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone. Jesus brings up this example of David, of David, and David doing something which commonly, normally would have been forbidden, 
But in this situation, it was allowed. It was permissible, and it was actually the good and right thing to do. It was, it was the keeping of the law, right, whatever they did, though commonly it would have been the breaking of the law. So here, Jesus is pointing out an aspect of the law that's necessary for us to understand, right, so that we don't fall into this type of sin, right, into this type of expectation that is contrary to the actual word of God. He brings up David. Did, haven't you read, he says to them? Now, this is a Javathim, right? Because they claim to be experts in the Bible. But he's saying, haven't you read, do you not know what the Bible actually says? How do you deal with this passage then? How do you interpret this passage about David? Because under their expectation, then David is sinning. But the Bible does not show David to be sinning, but rather the way it's presented is that David and the priest and his men were in the right, that it was the good, proper, right thing to do. So there has to be some way to harmonize these things. How is it that something that was forbidden for David commonly, in this case, it's permissible, right? What was it that made it permissible and made it the necessary and proper thing to do? Well, let's look at a couple of passages. First, Leviticus 24, 5 and 9. And this has to do with the showbread or the bread of presence, which was one of the symbols or rituals, part of the ritual law in the law of Moses. And it had certain regulations for how it was to be made, the purpose it served, the interpretation of it, who, it, who was supposed to eat it, okay? And under normal circumstances, David was not permitted to go into the temple or, and to take the showbread and eat it. He could not do this on any day of the week that he wanted to. It would have been a sin for him to do so. According to Leviticus 24, 5 and 9, it says, Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him for the Lord's offering by fire, his portion forever. So here, the bread of presence was to be made every Sabbath, and it was to be set on this golden table before the Lord, right? As a part of the symbolism that was in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And then who was permitted to eat the bread? Only Aaron and his sons, only the priests and his sons. It was for them only, and it was to be eaten in a holy place, and it was not for anyone else, but it was theirs only, okay? This is the way commonly this was to be practiced in the ritual law and in the ceremonies associated with the worship of the Old Testament from the time of Moses until the time of Christ. So, in a common, normal circumstance, would David have been sinning if he went to the tabernacle, took the bread, and ate it? Of course. Yes, he would be sinning 
against God under normal circumstances, okay? Now, and actually, let's see an example of this, not in relation to the showbread, but in relation to incense, in relation to incense. Second Chronicles chapter 26, Second Chronicles 26, this would be Uzziah, who did what was not lawful for him to do, and he was punished by God. Okay, punished by God. Second Chronicles 26, verse 16. It says, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Here, this is speaking of King Uzziah, who was a righteous king. He was a good king. But here, when he became strong, when he had prosperity, he became proud in his heart, which should be a good reminder for us that maybe God doesn't give us prosperity so that we don't become proud in our hearts, so that we don't commit sins like this. Because he committed a great sin against God, and he received a great punishment from God as well. So if God keeps us in humility and in a, a state of affliction, a humble state, then that can be for our benefit, to keep us from becoming proud in our hearts. Well, he became strong, he became proud, and then he was unfaithful to the Lord. He went into the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, if he's the king of the south, which he was, then what tribe is he from? He's from the tribe of Judah. And what is the tribe of the priests? It's the tribe of Levi, right? So he does not have the right to do this. This is not for him to do. This is for the priest to do from a certain tribe according to the law of Moses. Verse 17, then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord your God. Now, this shows you what kind of a man Azariah was, because this takes courage and boldness to oppose the king and to do this to his face and to tell him, you have no right to do this. And who's right in this situation? Azariah's right, right? He's rightly quoting and interpreting the Bible because it is true that in the law of Moses, you don't have a right to do this. You're not consecrated from the Lord to do this, but rather only the sons of Aaron. Only they have the right to do this. It's been given to them. It's not been given to you. Uzziah had been given other things. They are not, they're not kings. They're not sitting on the throne. He is. So why is he not content with what God has given him? He's not content with it. He wants something else that is not for him. And this is why he acts in his arrogance. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. They hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. And then he was a leper until the day of his death. Okay, so here, this is something that the king has no right to do. He does it in his pride. He goes in and does it in his pride, and God punishes him because of this. Rightfully so. And he was rightfully opposed by Azariah and the other priests. 
Okay, now to 1 Samuel 21. Why then did David not receive a similar condemnation from God when he ate the bread of presence? Well, look at the situation and we'll be able to determine why this is the case. 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said, Let no one know anything about the matter in which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us, as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Here, the situation is that David is running for his life. He's running for his life from King Saul, who's trying to murder him. And he comes here to Ahimelech. They have no provisions. They're desperate. They're, if they don't get food, they're going to die of hunger. But the only food available is this ceremonial food, this food that's only for the priest. Is this a common circumstance or uncommon? It's uncommon. It's an emergency, right? They're going to die if they don't get food, right? It's a matter of life and death, of human life, right? Of loving your neighbor as yourself, of doing good. So in that case, then, it's permissible for them to eat this bread because it's an issue of life and death. Innocent life is at stake. They're going to die of hunger or they're going to be famished if they don't receive food. This is all that is available. And so they are permitted to eat it. And the priest gives it to them, you know, under this condition that they kept themselves pure sexually, and which was the case. And David does not sin, nor does Ahimelech sin, nor do his men sin in this situation. And the reason is because desperation. It was a desperate emergency situation. Well, aren't we at a similar situation in Matthew chapter 12? The disciples are hungry. They're hungry. They need something to eat. And if it's permissible for David to eat the bread of presence, which commonly he was not permitted to eat, then certainly it is permissible for his own disciples, Jesus's disciples, to pick a few heads of grain and eat it even on the Sabbath day when they're going about doing good deeds, right? Doing those things that are pleasing in the sight of God. So again, here under the normal conditions, David and his men would not have been allowed to eat the showbread, but necessity, out of necessity, it was made allowable. And it's the same thing, right? Normally it's not lawful for him to eat it, but in this case, it is lawful for him because of the circumstance, uh, issue of life and death. Necessity made it okay for them to do so. And there was no sin committed. So you see what Jesus is doing here. He's taking this situation, this example that took place, 
and he's drawing principles from that and then applying it to the present situation. Necessity drove them to do this. And that's the same case with his disciples. It is out of necessity. It's not out of neglect. It's not out of carelessness. It's not out of complacency. It's not any of those things that is causing it. It's necessity that is driving them to pick a few heads of grain and eat it on the Sabbath day. So in no way are they breaking the spirit, the purpose of the Sabbath day. Verse five, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Here again, he takes another jab at them. <clears throat> he reminds them, have you, you haven't read in the law either, right? Maybe, you know, maybe you didn't get the first Samuel in your Bible reading because you petered out. But in the law, it even says that the priests, they break the Sabbath day, right? The priests work in the temple every Sabbath day and they are innocent. Now, again, when Jesus says they break the Sabbath day, he doesn't mean that they break it in the true sense. He means that the priests, do they not work on the Sabbath day? The things that they do the other six days of the week, they have to do those things on the Sabbath day as well. They have to go in and burn the incense. They have to make the sacrifices. They have to give the prayers. They have to do all of those things. And are the priests breaking the Sabbath day? Are they sinning against God because they're doing the work that they normally do the other six days of the week, but they're doing it on the Sabbath day? Well, if no work is allowed, then they would be breaking the Sabbath day. And the priests themselves would be guilty of sinning against God, but Jesus says they're innocent. And no one, not even the Pharisees, would go to the temple and accuse the priest of breaking the Sabbath day because they're doing the duties of the temple on the Sabbath day. And why is it that the priests who work on the Sabbath day are not breaking the Sabbath day? Well, what are they doing in the temple? They're promoting the worship of God. They're promoting the things of God. They're supposed to be teaching about eternal life, about spiritual matters. They're performing these rituals and ceremonies that teach the people spiritual realities. That's the whole point of the Sabbath day is to not focus on this life and to focus on the life to come, right? The purpose of the Sabbath is for this day to be set aside, to set aside the necessary affairs of this life and focus on the life to come. And the temple is dedicated to that purpose, to focusing on forgiveness of sins, spiritual realities, eternal life, right? The day of judgment is teaching all of these things through the various ceremonies and rituals that take place there. Does the work of the priests on the Sabbath detract from the purpose of the Sabbath? No, it promotes it. It actually promotes it so it's the best day for them to do these things. Just like today, the minister, the busiest day for the minister is the Lord's day. It's Sunday. Should I stay at home on Sunday because, well, I don't want to work and this is what I do for my job? No, because who's going to be deprived? The people are going to be deprived because they're coming to hear the word of God. They're coming to worship God. They're coming because they've all week long, they've been going to their jobs. They've been doing the things that they have to do for this life. And now they have this day where they're going to come together with God's people. The word of God is going to be opened up and they're going to hear from the word of God. So it's the day that the minister should be most active, most busy. He should be working the hardest on the Lord's day. And in the same way, the priest, they're not sinning against God. They're not 
working. They're not breaking the Sabbath because they are doing the duties that are necessary in the work in the temple on the Sabbath day. It is good for them to do so. These are works of necessity, necessary for the salvation of men, and these are works of mercy. It's merciful to men to do these things on the Sabbath day, and it promotes the worship of God. The whole day is to be set aside for spiritual pursuits, and whatever is taking place in the temple, if it's being done rightly, right, is going to be promoting those things. Now, of course, it can be corrupted and polluted, like in John chapter 2, where Jesus had to drive them out because they had made it into a, a place, a, a den of thieves, and he had to drive them out because of that to establish that it should be a house of prayer for all the nations. But this is what should be done on the Lord's, or on the Sabbath day. And again, are these things not obvious in the Bible? This is obvious in the Old Testament. Right? These are things that should be very clear to them. So why is it not clear? They don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. They do not have a heart to understand. That's the problem with these kinds of people. They don't see the Bible correctly. They don't interpret it rightly because they don't have the Spirit of God within them, helping them understand it the right way. Verse 6, But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. <clears throat> here again, Jesus is uh, bringing out a necessary component of our understanding and our interpretation of the Old Testament and of rituals. Rituals, ceremonies, symbols. Right? It is necessary for us to understand that whenever there is a symbol or a ritual established by God, right? and rituals are not in themselves evil if they are biblical, for example, is it evil for a person to be baptized? No, if it's done and understood rightly and, uh, and administered in the proper way. Is it evil for us to take the Lord's Supper every Sunday? No, if it's understood correctly and properly. Now, those things can be corrupted. They can be done in an improper way so that they're not beneficial, but they bring judgment upon us. But a ritual in and of itself is not evil. It's not sinful if it is established by God and if it is defined and practiced in the proper way, according to the will of God, according to the word of God, right? This is the way that we should do those things. But whenever there is a symbol, a ceremony, a ritual, however you want to describe it, there is the symbol, and then there is a thing that it signifies or whatever it symbolizes. And in terms of the relationship between the symbol and whatever is symbolized, which one is the greater? The symbolized is the greater, right? The symbol is merely a means to get us to the invisible, the spiritual, the spiritual reality, what it symbolizes. The temple and all of the worship, the rituals associated with the temple, these were symbols. And what did these things ultimately represent to the people? What were they supposed to teach the people about? Or who were they supposed to teach them about? about Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ and how the only way we can have our sins forgiven and have eternal life with God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Isn't this what the whole temple is about? The purpose of the temple? The sacrifices, the animal sacrifices were not an end in themselves, but were a means, a method to teach the people to put their hope in the one who was to come. The sacrifice that God would provide for the salvation of sinners, for the forgiveness of sins. Isn't this what 
Abraham said in Genesis chapter 22, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It shall be provided. And who is the it? It's Jesus Christ. Abraham understood it. And then it says in Genesis 22, this is Moses's insertion, as is it, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord, the sacrifice for sins shall be provided. And this sacrifice was typified or symbolized to the people, illustrated to them through the temple, through the sacrifices, through the priest, right? Was the priest an end in himself? No, he was a means to teach the people, to point the people to the great high priest. And who is the great high priest over the household of God? Jesus Christ, one after the order of Melchizedek, according to Hebrews 7 through 10. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So everything in the temple was designed by God intentionally to promote faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what the people were taught by Moses and the faithful priests through the years, not the unfaithful ones, but the faithful ones, to put their hope in the coming Christ who would die on the cross for their sins and be raised for their justification. That's the purpose of the temple. Well, something greater than the temple is here. And who is greater than the temple? It's Jesus Christ, the one the temple symbolized. He is the one, he is the purpose of the temple. The temple was a means to this end to promote faith in Christ. And now he is here. He is here. He is in their presence. And yet what are they doing to him? They're condemning him, condemning him, accusing him of sin. But if he's a sinner, how can he be the sacrifice for sin? He can't be. Only if he's a pure spotless lamb can he be the sacrifice for sin. Wasn't that taught to them as well? They were not allowed to bring a defective animal, but only one that was pure, spotless, without blemish, right? Symbolizing to them the need for a perfect sacrifice, for a sinless man to die on the cross for our sins. The purpose of the temple was to signify Christ. Now, this was understood in the Old Testament as well. Let's see this. Second Chronicles 6 Solomon, when he built the temple, Solomon was the one who constructed the temple. And Solomon understood that when he built the temple and when the temple was dedicated, that the temple was not a house because God was homeless. God was a vagrant, a bum living on the street and they built him a house and now God has a house to dwell in. Solomon understood clearly that this temple that he built in no way, shape, or form did God dwell there in the sense that God needed a house and this is where God's presence was found and nowhere else. He knew that the temple was merely a symbol. Yes, God dwelt there in the sense that God communicated to his people there. God's presence was there, but it wasn't contained merely in the temple that Solomon built because the world cannot contain God. The heavens cannot contain God. He, is so, he understood this. So he knew the temple was merely a means to an end, a purpose. There was a purpose to it to promote the worship of God, to promote faith in Christ, right? To promote these kinds of things. Because how can we know God without knowing Christ? 
This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. It says in John chapter 1. Okay, Second Chronicles 6, verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. So here Solomon is recognizing and stating. He understands this house that I have built cannot contain you. In no way, shape, or form does it contain you. Heaven cannot contain you. The highest heaven cannot contain you. So he understood that the temple was not a place necessary for God to have a house because he was homeless. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. The prophet Isaiah knows this as well. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But this is the one I will look. To who I will look? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. There, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house you can build for me? He says, where is the place that I may rest? How, how is it possible that a man would be able to, a man who was created by God would build a temple out of materials created by God and that this would contain God? It's impossible. Impossible for anyone who has a right understanding of God to think that the temple is a place where God dwells in this way. And then also in John chapter 2, John chapter 2, we mentioned earlier that the purpose of the temple was to predict Christ, to predict the coming of Christ. And Jesus explicitly says that his body is the true temple of God. John 2, 18. And he says this in the temple. So in the context of being in the temple, he's telling them what the purpose of the temple is. John 2, 18. Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. The temple of his body is what he was speaking of. The true temple. That is the place where people meet God. He is the one that brings us to God. He is the means by which we worship God, that we draw near to God. Right? Not in a temple on earth, but in the temple of his body through his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. This is the means by which we are able to draw near to God. So, if it is lawful for a priest to do the work of the temple on the Sabbath, then is it lawful for Jesus and his disciples to do the work of the true temple on the Sabbath? And the obvious answer is, of course. Of course, if, if the priests are allowed to offer sacrifices, kill animals, spill the blood here and there, burn incense, do all those get the wood, all the things that are necessary to do that, and they're not breaking the Sabbath, and the temple is only a symbol 
then when the true temple comes, who is Jesus, then why is he not permitted to do the things associated with promoting eternal life, the things of God? Of course he is. So he will do those things without being condemned. Verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Here, this is their problem. They don't understand the Bible. They're not harmonizing the Bible together. You don't know what this means. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. Now again, is this new information that no one knew in the Old Testament and now all of a sudden Jesus is adding new features to the worship of God? No, because he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's literally quoting from the book of Hosea and saying, if you were reading your Bible carefully, and if you understood the prophet Hosea in other passages as well, then you would not be doing what you're doing. But you're not understanding the Bible correctly. You're not understanding the proper place of these rituals and symbols and ceremonies in the will of God. And that's why you're condemning an innocent man. Had you understood this correctly, then you would not be committing this grave sin against God. Now, people will often say, well, the Bible doesn't divide the law. You may have heard this before. The, uh, one of the common ways uh, in the Reformed tradition to distinguish and categorize the law is into moral laws, ritual or ceremonial laws, and then some will say civic laws. And civic laws are simply the moral laws applied to society, right? Uh, punishments and various things in the way that we relate to the government and one man to another. So moral and ritual and civil law. And people will say, well, uh, the Bible doesn't divide it into that category, and so we shouldn't do that. But certainly the Bible does divide it into that category. That's what Jesus is doing right here. And if he isn't using those exact terms, the concept is obviously there. He's making a distinction between one law and another law, between a ritual and a moral commandment, and showing that having mere rituals without the moral principles, without the righteousness, makes these things completely useless, right? I desire mercy, I desire compassion, not a sacrifice. Not that God did not require sacrifices. He's not saying that, right? He's not saying that sacrifices have no place. Sacrifices do have a place in the worship, but they must be practiced and understood in the proper way. And if they are not coming with faith, repentance, righteousness before God, then the sacrifices are mere rituals that do not benefit them at all. And they're not pleasing to God, but they become repugnant to God. God despises them. He hates rituals whenever a person is not doing them in the proper way. And isn't that a common problem throughout Israel's history, right? They're constantly doing this. Isn't this a common problem today? It's everywhere. Ritualism is a common problem. Now, the solution is not to get rid of rituals, not to get rid of the true rituals established by God, but to observe them in the right way, in the proper way, and to see that there are greater principles that we must have in place before the rituals will be beneficial to us and before they will be pleasing to God. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea 
Hosea chapter 6, verse 5. It says, Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments of you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Can we offer sacrifices to God, burnt offerings to God, while being treacherous against him, while transgressing his covenant? Well, certainly we can do that outwardly, can't we? A person can be a transgressor of God, one who's dealing treacherously with God, and yet go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to God, a burnt offering to God. Is God going to be pleased with that? Of course not. Right? Who in their right mind would think that God is pleased with that, that I can go out and steal or murder or commit adultery and then just go to the temple, offer a sacrifice to God, and then it's going to wipe all my sins away. And then I can go back and do it again and again and again and again. Of course God is not pleased with that. He's not going to accept that burnt offering. That's what he means when he says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Not that God doesn't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, but only if they're accompanied with loyalty. Only if they come from true knowledge of God, true faith in God. Then they are pleasing to God. But if loyalty, if compassion, if knowledge of God are not there, then it's just a ritual. You're just killing an animal and it doesn't do you any good at all. Actually, God detests it. He hates it with a passion. And again, people do this all the time. The largest false church in the world is the Roman Catholic Church. And what are they doing but promoting this type of worship? You go to the priest, you confess your sins, he absolves your sins, you go out, you commit more sins, you go back and he absolves them over and over and over again, right? And you got nothing to worry about. You're going to make it to heaven because you went to your priest, you took the Lord's Supper, you, you had your Eucharist, you know, you were baptized, you said your Hail Marys, you know, he said, okay, you need to do this and that, and all your sins are wiped away. And, and then they just go out and do it over and over and over again because it doesn't matter because it's all going to be okay. It's rituals, rituals. Just do the ritual and everything's going to work out. But is that the way it works? No. First Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. Wasn't this the case with wicked King Saul? Wicked King Saul. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Does God delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? No, no of course not. Of course not. Who in their right mind, reading the Old Testament, reading the law of Moses, reading the Ten Commandments, could ever think that, okay, I can just offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, guarantee my spot in heaven, and then live however I want? Isn't this principle taught in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel? God did not have regard for Cain or his offering. Because why? He had no faith. That's, that's the interpretation of Hebrews chapter 11. 
it is by faith that Abel offered his sacrifice. Cain did not have faith. So Cain, the man, was rejected by God, and Cain's offering was rejected by God because Cain was a wicked man. He was just doing a ritual to appease God. But you can't appease God by doing those kinds of things. The only way that we can be pleasing in the sight of God is by faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. If the offering and the sacrifice is not being offered in faith, then it's not pleasing to God, but it becomes detestable in the sight of God. That's what happened with King Saul. He's not offering it by faith because he's not offering it according to the word of God. He's disobeying God when he's offering the sacrifice. So how can that be pleasing to God if in the, your very act of devotion to God, you're sinning against him? Right. You're disobeying his word. No way. No way, Jose. First, uh, not first, Samuel, um, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. almost said first Isaiah, but I meant to say Isaiah <laughs> chapter 1. It is first Isaiah, though. It is. But not according to the liberals, because they say there's three Isaiahs, but we only say that there's one Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. The, again, we could literally read every book of the Bible and see this taught. It's all over the place. It's everywhere in the Bible. So it's inexcusable for them to be doing this to Jesus. It's not a lack of information. It's not a lack of truth. It's a lack of faith. That's what's missing in the Pharisees. Right. Isaiah 1.10 Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Here, are they lacking in rituals? No, he said they're doing all of them. They're doing all of these things. Burnt offerings, sacrifices. They're having their new moons, their festivals. They're even praying to God. But does God hear any of it? No, he hates every single bit of it. Why? Because you are evil people. Your hands are covered with blood. And then you're going to lift those hands up to God in prayer and think that I'm going to bless you, that I'm going to hear you, that I'm going to help you? No, I'm not. You're a burden to me, he says. These things that you do are a burden to me. I don't want them. I don't want anything to do with them. But what do they need to do? Should they just never do these ever again? No, they need to do them the right way. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. Seek justice, right? Live a righteous life. And then bring your sacrifices to me. Then offer your burnt offerings. Then keep your festivals. Then offer your prayers to me and I will hear and it will be pleasing and it will bring glory and honor to God. Okay, one last passage, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. 
and verse 28. Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. And there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So there, right, he rightly understands the scribe that the implication of what Jesus is saying is that loving God and loving neighbor is more than burnt offerings and sacrifices, right? That, it, that is the more important aspect of the law, is loving God and loving your neighbor. And then the ritual must be fit into that, right? It must be practiced as an outflow of loving God and of loving one's neighbor. So does God require sacrifices in the Old Testament? Of course he does, right? Of course he does, right? If he didn't require them, then why does he command them, right? Of course he requires these things in the Old Testament. He desires them, though, in the true sense, right? Mercy with sacrifice is good, but sacrifice without mercy is not good. That's false religion. That is idolatry, according to 1 Samuel chapter 15, Ritualism, right? Bare rituals without true faith and obedience, these things are worthless. Now, again, he's not um, diminishing the place of rituals and symbols rightly understood, but they have to be properly practiced. They have to be practiced in the right way with the correct understanding. And that's true then, and it remains true today. Whether it be baptism, whether it be the Lord's Supper, whether it be sacrifices back then, the showbread that we read about, whether it be head coverings, whatever it is, right? It has to have the accompanying spiritual virtue, the spiritual value. Otherwise, it is utterly useless, which means faith, repentance, and godliness, pursuit of God, loving God and loving one's neighbor as himself. These are the issues of first importance, right? And then the others have to fit in with those things, right? With those things, but not without them, right? When the person observes the symbol or when the symbol comes into conflict with the weightier measures of the law, then the weightier measure has to take precedence, right? It has to take precedence over those types of things. That's what's happening with David and the showbread, right? The showbread, that is a measure of the law, but it's not the weightier measure of the law. The weightier measure is mercy, is loving your neighbor as yourself. It is helping the one, uh, the afflicted, the, the one who is desperate, the one who is hungry and about to die of hunger. And that's why it's okay for him to eat it in that situation. Also, one last thing, in their so-called zeal in verse seven, for the law, who are the ones here actually breaking the law? Pharisees. The Pharisees. Yes, the Pharisees are the ones actually breaking the law. Jesus isn't, his disciples are not, 
They are the ones breaking the law. They're hypocrites. Get the log out of your own eye before you get the speck out of your brother's. And what are they breaking according to Proverbs 17, 15? Are we not supposed to judge with righteous judgment? Right. Well, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Abomination. That's not good. No. To be an abomination to God. The one who justifies a wicked man, a sinful man, and says, no, this is a righteous man, that is abominable to God, but also the one who condemns a righteous man. This also is an abomination to God. Well, what are they doing, according to Jesus? You would not have condemned the innocent. They're condemning the righteous man, the innocent man, therefore they are an abomination to God. They do not love the law of God they actually despise and hate the law of God. You have a fine way of breaking the commandment in order to establish your tradition, according to Mark chapter 7. This is what they're doing. They have a zeal for God, but not according to <coughs> knowledge, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 2. So we shouldn't have this view that the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, that they loved the law, that they loved Moses. They did not love Moses. They did not love the law. They hate it. They hate it. They despise it. They detest it. They're not zealous for the law. They are zealous for their lies. Yep. Their lies and misinterpretations of the law, but they're not zealous for the true meaning and true interpretation of the law. They actually hate it. This is what they're doing. Okay, I said we go to eight, but we're going to stop there. Eight's like a, it fits in between both. So we'll pick it up uh, next week. Uh, in verse 8, and the next section also is dealing with the Sabbath more um, in, in doing good on the Sabbath.